0: Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential and welcome back friend of the show, Dr. Lily Gorin. Dr. Goren is a professor of political science and global studies at Carroll University. Her research includes American government, the presidency, and she often integrates popular culture, film, TV, and literature as a means of understanding politics. Dr. Gordon is back with us to talk about this week's big news Joe Biden's pick for his vice presidential running mate, California Senator Kamala Harris, as well as to take a look at the pop cultural moment in politics right now, and SNL and Maya Rudolph's portrayal of Senator Harris, of course. Dr. Gordon is the co author of the books Women and the White House and Mad Men and Politics. Welcome back, Professor Lily Gorin.
1: Thanks for having me on again, Christina. Glad to be here.
0: So earlier this year, when Joe Biden announced that his pick for vice president would be a woman, there was a potential lineup of candidates that just seemed so strong. Why was it California Senator Kamala Harris?
1: Well, I mean, I think part of it is that not only did he indicate initially uh, a woman would be his vice presidential pick, but then um, he also indicated it was likely to be a woman of color or it sounded to to many of us like that was the direction he thought he needed to go in, um, in part because of the way he had gotten to the nomination uh, with the strong support of African-Americans and particularly African-American women um, who have been one of the loyalist um, voting blocks in the Democratic Party um, across the board, but also particularly for um, Vice President Biden in his in his quest for the nomination, um, and so you're right that there were there are quite a few women who you know were under consideration and were on the list. Um, you know, obviously some of the contenders, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, but also again, in terms of a oh, person of color, a woman of color, you did have Susan Rice, Val Demings, Stacey Abrams was, seemed to be interested in the position as well. Um, and then you, and you, you have, you know, one of, of the more formidable debate opponents to Vice President Biden was uh, Kamala Harris. And she, you know, she dropped out of the race earlier um, than some of the others. And and so there's you know, some discussion that that saved them from having more contentious debates, potentially. But it also, you know, she was running out of money when she, you know, she su- shut down her, her campaign, but she has, you know, s- pretty strong poll numbers. She has a, a cross-section of experience, which is also really interesting in terms of having held statewide executive office and also being in the legislative branch.
0: Her background, because she really has her feet in two different kinds, immigrant parents, her, a Jamaican father and a South Asian mother, and she grew up for the most part with her mother. How important is her background to her politics? Well,
1: she talks about it as being quite vital to her. And of course, she is a graduate of Howard University, which is a historically Black Um, University, uh, which has, you know, we have this um, group of colleges and universities in the United States that were set up specifically in that regard and that they continue to really um, produce strong um, African-American citizens and uh, politicians and sort of across the board. And so she attributes um, a variety of her thinking and her character to both her understanding of who she is in this, this child of immigrants, but also to her growing up in the context of being seen as Black and or South Asian.
0: She's not the most progressive of, the can- of these women that we were talking about before, and, and many have even talked about her as quite a safe choice. How does she complement the ticket?
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways to kind of think about this. And I I was talking to some of my colleagues who are experts on the vice presidency as well, and thinking about how she and and Joe Biden um, are sort of, in the center of the Democratic Party of their time. So ideologically, if you look at Joe Biden's record over the time that he was in the Senate, which was sort of the long expanse of his career, he was a Democratic Senator more or less in the center of the Democratic Party at the time. And if you look at Kamala Harris, you see her as being, again, in the center of the Democratic Party of her time. Now she's the next generation. So her Democratic Party is much more the party of Barack Obama. um, And and so it's a different party than the party of Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter um, as as the previous generation. Um, And so in this regard, she is kind of in concert with biden in terms of not being on one wing or another wing of the democratic party because
0: i was thinking of a comparison between trump who who with his lifestyle or whatever you want to call it chose pence as a very religious conservative that they would complement each other in that way so to speak
1: and, and again, I'm, I'm referencing some research that my colleagues, Julia Zari and William Adler, um, have been doing about the sort of differences in terms of how Democratic politicians um, who are running for president often choose somebody and how Republicans do. And, and if you look at the sort of Republican nominees, Um, who have been on the ticket, George W. Bush and Mitt Romney, John McCain, and Donald Trump of the last grouping, that they, they tended to take somebody, they were coming as outsiders, and they often chose somebody who was much more of a kind of conservative, Religiously conservative and and to the right of them, politician as their running mate. And the Democratic choice has often been in this same sort of period somebody who's more complementary as opposed to moving or bringing in a side the way that the Republicans have.
0: As a district attorney in California and attorney general, what were her focuses?
1: Well, I mean, she made a, a great effort and ran on protecting um vulnerable people, particularly children, in, in both of those capacities. Um, and she she spearheaded um, sex crimes units. and she sort of went after in in terms of prosecutorial efforts to sort of make sure that the most vulnerable, as she articulates it, are the ones who are being protected by the legal system.
0: I read that trump and and Ivanka actually donated, to her campaign when she was running for attorney general.
1: Well, you know, they also donated to Hillary Clinton, I guess, when she was running for senator. Yeah. So.
0: But we have to talk about her her flair for debate. I mean, I was holding my breath when she was questioning Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings. Her style, how would you describe it? And has it always been like this?
1: She does have this prosecutorial capacity sort of take the questioning. And again, this is probably her not only her legal training, but her capacity in terms of litigation and prosecution is really where she has been able to articulate uh, questions and and press issues um, consistently when she's in the position to do so. And so I think it comes out of her legal training, but I think she's transferred it over in a lot of ways to to her role when she was when she's been in the Senate and Senate and when she's you know and she's going to be now essentially prosecuting a case and and that's what you see in a campaign is the campaign is prosecuting a case um, for their ticket and against the other ticket and in a lot of ways the vice presidential candidate is often one who is prosecuting the case against the opposition. You can go back to Spiro Agnew when he was running as Nixon's vice presidential candidate, you can go back to, you know, you can look at the way that Sarah Palin was also operating. You can even go back on certain sense and look at Joe Biden when he was running as as Barack Obama's vice presidential candidate, that the vice presidential candidate is often in the sort of contemporary period put into the position of being the prosecutor of the attack, so that the presidential candidate does not necessarily get tarnished with that.
0: You were mentioning the debate that the Senator Harris had with Joe Biden where they were talking about the bussing how did she handle that
1: Well again she sort of took the case to him and and there was a lot of discussion about it in term that that came out of that because of the way that she was presenting the argument with regard to him and the way that he was kind of responding that they were the generational distinctions and in the democratic party, here is an old Irish politician, which in lots of ways is, um, you know, a classic thinking about the democratic party in the 20th century. And here is this multiracial California woman who experienced busing. And so they're coming across the generations and across the span of the Democratic Party. And I think that was part of why that particular exchange actually, you know, had as much legs as it did.
0: But do you see any issues with um, what could be the potential problems with this ticket as opposed to him choosing someone else?
1: I don't know necessarily, you know, what the issues would would be. The the person who's serving as vice president constitutionally has very little power. And so how much the vice president does or doesn't do either on the campaign trail or if elected in office is up to the president. And and one of the things that she said she wanted that Biden also said, you know, he wanted because this is what he had said to Obama when Obama talked to him about running with him was Biden said, I want to be the last voice in the room and I want to have the capacity to tell you I disagree with you and I want to be able to tell you what I think of what's going on. And if that's The partnership that you want to have, then that's what I'm willing to do because otherwise I can, you know, stay in the Senate, basically. Which was kind of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, was actually what Mondale said to Carter when Carter first um, pushed or, you know, sort of went to Mondale to ask him to run with him because Mondale, you know, senior senator, incredibly well respected, lots of power in the Senate from Minnesota, and he's like, I can do more good for you in the Senate than I can being vice president, which, you know, nobody likes being and is generally historically a non-position. You just end up being there and you get sent on foreign trips. Mm-hmm. I've seen Dave, or remember that? Right, exactly. You know, presidents don't like to be reminded of their mortality. So they just send the vice president away. Right. Um, and, you know, there are famous there are these famous examples of Truman not knowing about the nuclear bomb because Roosevelt never briefed him on it and, and so forth. So like historically the vice presidency was the result of the electoral college creation. They needed to figure out somebody who got the second most amount of votes in the electoral college. And that's how they got to the vice presidency. It wasn't like on the list in the concept of the presidency to start with. And so when Carter, this is a very long story, but when, when Carter um, went to Mondale And Mondale said, I don't want to do that, essentially, because I I can do a lot more with an agenda and a platform in the Senate. And Carter said, let's do this more as a partnership. Let's have, you know, a real connection. Let's work together that you're in all the meetings, you're in the cabinet, essentially. And it reshaped the vice presidency. It was a template in terms of reshaping a kind of contemporary vice presidency that is much more active than previous ones. So there's this sort of departure with regard to Mondale in 1976 and during Carter's term. And it sort of is negotiated by each president and vice president because it's, again, up to the president to give position power profile to the vice president or not. And we've seen extremely strong vice presidents, obviously, like Dick Cheney with W. Um, Bush. And we've also seen somebody like Pence, or in in a lot of ways, H.W. Bush during long stretches of the Reagan administration. And, and then at the same time, you've seen Gore, and you saw Biden, and you saw Cheney. And so what, uh, Harris said, as I understand it, was the same thing that Biden said to Obama. She said, I want to be the last person in the room. I want to be able to voice my opinion when it differs with you. I want to be an advisor. I want to be part of an administration moving forward. And so you see, again, the sort of move to integrate a stronger, a strong voice in the vice presidency.
0: And in terms of of Trump, I think it took about 20 seconds for him to call her nasty. And something I wasn't thinking would happen right away are these birther discussions that also came up after about one day. Tell me how you think that they'll be combating this pick.
1: Well, I mean, there's the attack has sort of been in in two different ways so far. One is that, you know, Biden and Harris are socialists, anarchists, Antifa, and the other is that they're not populist and and they're pro police in terms of the ideology there's been those attacks, and there's also the attack on her um nasty
0: but all women are nasty
1: yeah um it, it's a term that he usually associates with women he he doesn't usually call men nasty he he um, he calls them other things, but he doesn't usually call them nasty and he's Obviously, he spent a lot of time during the Obama presidency and before uh, talking about where Obama was born and the discussion of his birth. And so now we have the, the question about Harris because she is the child of two um, immigrants, but she was born in the United States. Do you think that this will continue? Probably. I would think. But getting into
0: pop culture and politics, how have you seen pop culture during the run up to the election? I mean, I know that we're in the middle of a pandemic and all the talk shows are working on Zoom and all that. But are there any things that have stuck out to you in terms of political humor and things like that?
1: Well, I, you know, I do think before we went into the lockdown, obviously, that Saturday Night Live was doing a lot of its, its kind of political humor, um, having so many of the debates reimagined. And obviously, we've had Alec Baldwin in his role as Donald Trump for a while now, um, again featured on Saturday Night Live. So you see the satirization um, of any number of the politicians that has sort of continued but you also, you know, you also see that the candidates, when they were campaigning, were also trying to make use of some of these ways that they are characterized. Um, Kate McKinnon and um, and Elizabeth Warren, and you know the jackets and and the way that she um, intones her voice. Um, that was and, so good. And-
0: I mean, Kate McKinnon, <laughs> that's, that's my favorite. <laughs>
1: And I think, you know, and again, this this goes back to, I, I'm showing my age, obviously, but this goes back to when Chevy Chase did Gerald Ford and, you know, and Gerald Ford you know, actually met with Chevy Chase and, and they had, you know, they had spoofs and so forth. And so, you have this long trajectory now of not only Saturday Night Live, but obviously the late night hosts and so forth who also get into it in, in ways that are, are topical regularly. But I think that you, you sort of see a lot of the candidates who have played with their, their images that are being played by somebody else. Um, you won't find
0: Trump meeting with Alec Baldwin, though. <laughs> he
1: seems no, no.
0: Maya Rudolph started doing Kamala Harris during these debates already. How would you say that she has characterized her?
1: I think she sees in Kamala Harris a smoothness that you sort of see taken up in the way that she, you know, has the wind the fan blowing in her hair and a lot of the positions that she takes and and also her, you know, her telegraphing of herself as as somebody who Um, people see as the, quote, fun ant, right? And and so that, you know, a fun ant is not necessarily threatening. And so the question of like women in politics is often this sort of needle that female candidates try to thread between not being too threatening or seeming too aggressive or ambitious Um, And that that term is is a tough one, too,
0: which is one of the things that she's already been accused of, Senator Harris, that she's
1: too ambitious. Exactly. Um, And and also then not being too shrinking. Right. And, and so the, the kind of fun aunt is a place where you're not a mom, you're not being classified in this sort of maternal position, but you're not out there and, and you're fun as she says, but it's also, you know, the way that, that Maya Rudolph has characterized it or the writing of the role is like, I'm going to share my pot with you and then I'm going to arrest you for (laughs) using it. (laughs) So I, I think that you know you have the the presentation of her as cool, as smooth, as uh, relatable. You know she's she's middle aged woman, and she's not presented as threatening or aggressive in the way that some of the other portrayals are showing perhaps a a more aggressive female politician.
0: I mean, as so many others, one of the wonderful things about Kamala Harris getting on the ticket was that we'll see so much of Maya Rudolph, I hope. (laughs) But if you look at this period now that we're in with this incredibly crazy election, the pandemic and everything, what do you see in terms of drama and popular culture? What do you think we'll be seeing more of
1: well, I mean, I understand from what I read in in a lot of the sort of entertainment and popular culture um, work or you know publications that a number of series are already taking on covid and and they 're going to integrate them into their narrative storylines in the coming seasons if they 're filming or whenever they start filming. Um, but I, I think that the idea of a global pandemic and, and what this means and the implications is going to have a very long shadow in terms of popular culture. I, I think it's not just films. I think it's movies. I think it's going to be books. I think it's going to be the way that people conceptualize their vulnerability Um, And, um, you know, I'm doing work at the moment on uh, superheroes. So, you know, superhero narratives have been about, in terms of the threats, in terms of uh, you see climate change as a threat, and you see issues, say in like Black Panther, with regard to racial justice. But I think that the the sort of understanding of the vulnerability posed by something like this pandemic is going to come up all over the place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In terms of it may be dystopians, dystopia sort of settings, but it may also be just this this sort of narrative around the vulnerability that you can't. Can't protect from.
0: I find it interesting because there's so many right at the moment of the protests and the Black Lives Matters and all this important things that are happening, there's so many excellent narratives that are happening from the Five Blood Spike Lee to Watchmen.
1: Yeah. And again, you're right. Um, we've been watching Watchmen. And also, you know, as, a, as I mentioned, Black Panther, which sort of takes this up as well as a number of other sort of narratives that are in this zone um, with regard to racial justice, even before, obviously, the George Floyd killing. But you do have this question of a racial dimensions racial reckoning um, racial inequality particularly with regard to the police obviously this is what Watchmen is all about right um, and so I, I think that it's just going to that narrative will probably continue to pulse through a lot of what we see in popular culture but I do think you know when when you think about why we are infatuated with superheroes they solve problems that seem insurmountable. Well. COVID is a seemingly an insurmountable problem.
0: Dr. Gordon, it was such a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you so much and hope to to call you again. Of course. Thank you.
1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.